Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 684. Katie, I don't know if you're familiar with the Nerdist Podcast. What? Podcast? Occasionally, Podcast. we do a live uh, stand-up comedy show, which is very similar to all the stand-up specials that I watched when I was growing up, mm-hmm. which is why we started the Nerdist Stand-Up Cluster. Now, we've done a couple of these, and uh, we've had a lot of great folks on there. Your Pete Holmeses, your uh, your Ali Wongs. Ron your Funches. Ron Funches, your Rory Scovels. Yeah, a lot uh, of good people on this. And we are doing another one Monday, June 8th at Meltdown in Los Angeles. Tickets are available at nerdmeltla.com. And uh, here's who's confirmed so far. James Adomian. Oh, awesome. Our own Kyle Clark. Going to be performing. Kyle? I've never Kyle heard Clark? of him. Kyle what? Clark. No. He's our walk-around Muppet. Cameron Esposito, who's oh, awesome. Great. Al Jackson. I f- oh, I fucking love Al Jackson. He's so funny. Megan Nuringer. Oh, nice. Sarah Schaefer. Sarah. Dave Thomason, who uh, he is writes a, on the show. He's a writer yeah. on At Midnight. Baron Vaughn. Oh, nice. And then uh, and then the winner of the Totino's uh, yeah. favorite comedian search, which is uh, I believe there are not taking entries. We're no, not taking not entries anymore. That ended May thirty first, but. Uh, we put out the call. Totino's uh, essentially sponsored the stand-up cluster, and so we put out the call to submit stand-up videos, and then we're going to pick one person to get uh, that slot to really discover someone that we didn't know before, mm-hmm. to put them on the uh, on the stand-up cluster, and that person's going to do an opening set for me at Comic-Con in San Diego on Friday as part of the Fun Comfortable Tour. That's a so, good deal. Yeah, so nerdmailla.com, uh, tickets to come see the, stand, the, the, the recording of the stand-up cluster, June 8th, Monday, 9 p.m. at uh, Meltdown, NerdMelt. Um, so there you go. And it's cheap. It's only like eight bucks, right? It's like eight bucks. Yeah. Yeah, I almost wanted to make the show free, but then I, I didn't want... The reason that I made it even $8 is because I didn't want a bunch of people just going, oh, free show, and then just squatting on the tickets. Yeah. There is a little bit of value in have, having people pay a little bit of money, but eight bucks to see That's nothing. a bunch of amazing comedians. And you. And, so. and, uh, and, uh, and then it's going to be uh, you know, a basically a live, a live podcast. Then um, that, uh, I, thought that was, I thought that was not an, uh, an unreasonable request. It's not. I think it's fun. What do you got going on over there on the Nerdith Community Cockboard? Uh, the JV Club, which is hosted by Janet Varney, which is an amazing podcast that we have. Her Boys of Summer series is back in the first episode. Features Colin Hanks and is really good. And you can find it now on Nerdist.com or the, by searching the JV Club on iTunes. I do believe I am doing it soon. Are you? Yes. You're going to be a boy of summer. I'm going to be a boy of summer. That's fun. It is going to be fun. Yeah. I like that she does this. It, it mixes it up a bit. It's real fun. Her Bar- podcast is great. Barney's the best. Uh, Craig Tomashoff, or Tomashoff, I apologize if I'm butchering your name, is working on a book that he would love to share with the Nerdist community. He's traveling around the country for several weeks to meet... Real people who are running for president. He's found 15 people of very different backgrounds, all of whom are running for president as a way of finding personal redemption of one sort of another. Some people have funny stories to tell, some that are more tragic, but they're all fascinating. And you can go to Facebook.com slash The Candidates to find out more. And that's C-A-N-T-I-D-A-T-E-S. Candidates. Great. Mm-hmm. That is what's happening in the Nerdist Community Cookboard. Send your event to events. At Nerdist.com. Yeah. Email that shit. This episode is Mike Judge. Oh, man, he was rad. He was so cool. You know, like watching, because occasionally he would dip into a voice. Yeah. And watching your sheer delight. Well, because they never did anything Beavis and Butthead related. Yeah. It's just like and he signed, he signed, he drew uh, Butthead oh, in our, in our guest That's all book. I used to watch when I was a kid. But besides Beavis and Butthead, Mike Judge is... 
one of the smartest genius. Dudes. Anyone who came up with idiocracy in Office Space. If he had just genius. made Office yeah. Space, <laughs> if he had just made Idiocracy, but Silicon uh, Valley is. Oh, it's so good. I mean, you're probably watching the show. If you listen to the podcast, you probably watch Silicon Valley. If you're not, you should. It is, um, pr- I want to say, the best comedy on television right now. Sunday nights, 10 p.m. on HBO, or you can watch it on the HBO Go or uh, HBO, HBO Now, now yeah. app. So, uh, uh, Mike Judge, it was an honor to have him here. And I just, I, I love watching a bunch of my friends be super funny and successful. And I'm so, I'm proud as much as I am a fan of the, of, of the show. But yeah, definitely. Mike Judge was great. And the guy's, the, the guy's just good at everything he does. Like when you look at all the stuff that he's done. He's, he's, he's just a genius. Much good. He's pretty much as good at everything he does. And watch this episode with your ears, number 684. I fucked it up, and I didn't want to go back That's and do fine. it again. Okay, Katie? Watch it with your ears. Let's just stick right. with it. Right. You know, when Prince fucks something up, he does it again, so people think it's on purpose. So watch with your ears. <laughs> episode number 684, Mike Judge. Now entering Nerdist.com. He's dead to me. I don't want to hear his name again. How often do you do these? <laughs> Pretty often. Like, uh, we put up three a week, so but sometimes we'll record. Okay. We can sometimes we'll, we record Let's between up. four and eight a week, and there, you know, our schedule is pretty well mapped out for two or three months. Oh, that's my <laughs> special watch. Is that your? Is that the Google Watch? Or it's, this is the uh, the Apple Watch. I mean, yeah, what did I say? Yeah, yeah you know, I'm a I, um, I, I'm a I'm a technology sheep. I how I do you like it? Every it? toy. Um, I really like it a lot, actually. It's I was skeptical about it when I first heard because you know for years the tech industry has been trying to serve us yeah. a form of the Dick Tracy watch, and it's never <laughs> it's never worked. I mean, it, you but remember they, they haven't gotten us the stove with built-in TV yet. <laughs> <laughs> that was the arrow pointing to what he wanted. Technology has really yeah. failed by putting putting a TV Stove on the stove with built-in TV. He always had that. Like, he wanted to when it happens. Chester Gold. I said it for. Yeah, he was always wanted to claim those things. The two-way wrist TV, but it didn't. Uh, yeah. it, and I remember, if you remember in the eighties, they did the. Uh, I believe I think Sony made like a TV watch. There was like a, when they were when they were there was the Watchman oh. after the Walkman boom. Then they, they created. Well, the, yeah, I had a Sony Watchman, the crazy black and white thing. That I still have big, it. Yeah, I still have one in my I garage. I have mine somewhere. Yeah, you have an antenna that you huge yeah. antenna, and and then they made a they made a watch version for a while, and then uh, no one bought it. And it, I, I just feel like for the longest time, I felt like some type of communication watch has been. <laughs> As elusive as making 3D a viable thing that they they keep yeah. trying to sell us, but I gotta say I've I've had it for a couple of days and it's already been tremendously useful. Oh, I'm gonna have to get one. It's it's pretty great. I mean, it's got all the apps on it, and it's just like you can. It's actually more convenient than using the phone, and it's less distracting looking down at your phone. And it's it's oh yeah. It's uh, but it, but of course it's another device to, to carry around everywhere. My my bag of cords is yeah. <laughs> well, how do you charge it? You just it's plug the, it there, there's basically 
don't think it's quite. It, it, oh. I think it looks like an inductive. I think there's an inductive surface in the back, and it's like oh, a okay. magnet, and it sticks, and then it and then it basically just charges. Um, but it's uh, it is kind of funny now that we're so addicted to technological advancement that it's. Oh, you brought that. Thank you, Michelle. Hey, how's it going? Oh, were we actually doing the podcast just now? Well, we were just yeah. chatting and we're That's recording, good. so it's, yeah. Hello! Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Welcome. Do you want some water or something? Um, do you guys want oh, some? No. You can have one of these. There Would you, you like a water? Sure. There you go. Thank you. Scout, if you're cool with that, just stay there and don't move. This dog never moves. <laughs> but I think it's just funny, it's just funny how, you know, when uh, we grew up around the same time. I'm older, but... But but not by so, much. But like I'm was born in '62, but yeah, like the, um, yeah, I've seen a lot of yeah, a lot of shit has happened. Do you remember the? Do you remember like the like the when the Sears catalog when you'd get the Sears catalog in the '70s, which was yeah. you know at the time like oh this has a lot of the great the the hippest technology. I mean it's oh yeah, Sears catalogs were incredible. I, when I started playing bass, I had this epiphany like it sort of in the middle of the night that like I was gonna. Be, I was going to buy a bass and learn to play bass, electric bass, and I went and got the Sears catalog. It was like in the middle of the night, I don't know, like one in the morning, and it was like they had a you could buy a bass in the Sears catalog. <laughs> I, I just I ended up buying one at a pawn shop, but but yeah, Sears catalog had everything. Sears catalog like, was basically the internet. I mean, yeah, it was basically yeah. like Amazon. Like it was there was every type yeah. of every type of thing you needed, and I'm sure at the time people when people first started getting Sears catalogs, it probably felt like. What the internet feel like? Wow, you could just get anything. Another way it was like the internet is, was, uh, you know, if you're a 12 year old boy, there were pictures of girls in bras. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, uh, it even had that. Really, really great 70s health bras, <laughs> which are basically just like, just like uh, impenetrable cones. These kids don't realize how good they have it today. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like, I tried to explain to someone like. Yeah, I still get kind of turned on if there's like <laughs> snow on the TV because it reminds me of trying to watch scrambled porn and people are like, oh my what god, are you talking like, yeah. about? <laughs> like, well, there was a time when you and then you know, oh, yeah, that was. A... <laughs> oh my god, yeah, that was. I remember that scrambled porn was just. It was so bizarre. Yeah, it'd be like on some UHF channel, like fifty-seven or something, and you'd just be praying for some signal to come through and Not, nothing. Yeah, and for you know, you might get a picture for a half a second. You're like, okay, there, there, <laughs> there was a shoulder. I think that was a sh- it was either a butt or a shoulder. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm just gonna let my imagination do the rest of the work. Yeah. It was just like it was. It was basically it was basically a, a, a relay race between. <laughs> what you could see, and your 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 imagination, your hormonal imagination yeah. taking over and being like, oh, they must be. Oh my god! Yeah, you would just you yeah you your brain would put it together. It would come in like there'd be the type where there'd be like flashes of it in black and white, and then half <laughs> sometimes half a screen here and the other half over here. So you'd have to. Put them together. If you were lucky. (laughs) If you were lucky, yeah. If you were absolutely lucky. Millennials have no idea what we're talking about right now. Uh, No, this is basically just like we might as well be elderly people. Like in the old days, you had to make a woodcut of a vagina, and then it took you a month and a half to jerk off once. (laughs) Masturbation was difficult. We had. There was also the. Um, my parents had the Horizon Time Life book series, which was about 
I guess history of art, but there was the Renaissance paintings. That had, <laughs> like, I remember telling the kid across the street, I got a book in my house that has, like, because there was a painting, this one of those massive paintings that had, like, you know, 50 naked women in it. Yeah. So I have, I have a book that has 50 naked women. What? I'll bet you. <laughs> it's like, yeah. that is the serious catalog of porn. <laughs> it's, uh, but, it, but then, you know, you were the right age... To essentially get, I mean, it's I'm, I know you've talked about this a million and a half times, probably more than you care to, but getting swept up in actual Silicon Valley and then going and working in, in the tech sector for a oh, while, we, yeah. And but but also being a dude, and there's a there's a lot. I mean, this is very common now, being someone who had artistic pursuits as well as because you majored in physics, right? Yeah. And then you went in, and then you went to work for a graphics card company. Uh, yeah, that was a, my yeah my second job was a company that made yeah the early early GPUs. <laughs> what, what, yeah, type, they, what types of graphics could that that car? Well, it was on? actually so this was eighty seven when I had that job. Oh, okay, that was actually like I mean it was a legit. Well, it was for what is it ten eighty by sixteen something screens, which nobody they were used for very not back then. Uh, they, yeah. Each one of these graphics cards that this company that I worked at made. I remember they were about the price of a Hyundai, they could, like whatever that was, like $5,000 they would sell for. So they were they were selling them to like the government was using uh, some kind of like fingerprint technology with these higher resolution screens. And uh, but it was, yeah, it wasn't uh, it was a very it was a s- small company and they made them for, you know, very specific clients. It wasn't like it was uh, it was early on. But, yeah, no, I I did. Yeah, my degree was in physics. I always did electronic stuff. Um, had a ham radio license when I was in. Uh, I was, I was a nerd when there was absolutely nothing cool about it. You basically I missed it. I, you. Be- I should. I'm trying. I'm, now I go around talking about how I used to be a nerd, but. Yeah, well, that's that's the big that's the big thing now is is that uh, people all the time say to me like, oh, "You're not really a nerd." I'm like, "No, no." You don't understand. And there, there was this, there was this era of like proto nerds when you really like you had basically because there was no internet, so you basically had whatever three or four people at your school happened to be into that stuff. Yeah, a comic book shop maybe, <laughs> and Radio Shack. Like those, the, oh, Radio Shack was yeah, I was that was a I regular. Mean, <laughs> Radio Shack was basically your uh, like your uh, Home Depot if you could yeah, and or if you were like the really snobby the ham radio operators when I was a kid, the really snobby ones were like just refused to go to Radio Shack. They go to <laughs> in Albuquerque. There was a place. It was uh, they called it EP. It was electronic parts. But uh, so yeah, I'm going to EP and uh, but um. But yeah, I mean, it was it was also like I don't know. If, I mean, I'm 52. When I was in high school, I took Fortran programming, and you'd go down to the computer center at UNM, and you'd, you'd do it on cards. You'd program on on uh, <laughs> you type it out, and then you'd go on these cards. It was crazy. It was crazy. Let me tell you, it was wild. <laughs> Back in those days, <laughs> we were on cards, like actual <laughs> cards. It was insane. <laughs> But, but, but I don't did think you it, do computer stuff like did you, yeah I mean my my uh, my first machine was <laughs> was a fairly useless machine it was a it was the TRS eighty which was basically that oh that, it was like this all inclusive term it was like one of the terminals yeah what year would that have been eighty like, one or eighty two yeah maybe? yeah I yeah. remember those things and uh, and and there wasn't really. Uh, and it, it was a fairly unreliable machine. It, it turned on about half the time I could actually get the I could actually get the screen uh-huh. to come on, and then um, 
Was that through the school or through no? A, my or parents, a... um, my parents bought it for me because they knew. I mean, my my parents very much subsidized my technology addiction, and so after the TRS eighty debacle, Radio Shack <laughs> came out with the TRS eighty Color Computer two, which was. Which was a much more, uh, I'll say, robust machine that actually used <laughs> the television as a monitor, and it was. It was oh yeah, the, I remember that. Yeah, the terminal was basically built into the. It was actually built into the. the, the all the logic stuff was built into the keyboard, and so you would you know Just run a in. wire into the back, yeah. you know and. Like, you, oh man, I don't just sound like old people, but just like having to go around to the back of your TV and like scoot yeah. it out and unscrew and put in the little U hook in the yeah, little screw, coaxial yeah, little co- cable, like, coax cables and the little yeah. the, the, the antenna hooks and the uh, oh yeah, actually hook into the antenna hook, part hook of it, yeah, thing, right. And you could, there, there, that's there, even yeah. There was the adapter. There was like a coax to you to to like to UHF adapter where you could like right because it it, it didn't have a direct NT, it didn't have your NTSC <laughs> video which is. It, it had the you'd go direct into the to the to the RF. It's called. Uh, it was you. You basically it, you. Yeah. This, like that 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 slice of nerd culture was not. It, nothing was like hand delivered. Like you 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 had to. Oh not, yeah. not only did you had to go out of your you had to go out of your way to not only consume it, but a lot of times you had to make the stuff that you then would consume because there just yeah it just wasn't that much stuff yet. Yeah, there was the. Mine was well. This was in college. I, I didn't own my own ever, but the it's the Heathkit M six eight hundred. But that was like just a that was like machine code programming for specific things. But yeah, I mean nobody. I was looking that up the other day, and I, you know they sell them on eBay and stuff. A lot of that old. I mean, I'm sure one. I don't know one of those Radio Shack things is probably worth something now, don't you think? Probably a little bit. I mean, I don't know yeah. if it's worth. I mean, I, I think. Uh, yeah, actually, I don't know what it. You know, every once in a while you. If I've I've been to conventions before that'll have, um, you know, like a, a little area of you know a museum of old of old yeah. machines or a museum of old game consoles or a museum of old, of old computer terminals and uh, it's I, I always aesthetically I always like the Altair eighty eight hundred because it just looks it looked really cool and analog and uh, oh I think we had we did a photo shoot for Hollywood Reporter it was. Alec Berg, myself, and Thomas Middleditch, and, and they had a bunch of those old things. Yeah, they, I don't know where they got them. I, I guess there's you know prop houses or whatever, but it was kind of cool seeing they had that one. It's kind of cool seeing those again. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, when you started working in the when you started working in the tech sector, did you you I'm sure did you at that time go oh well this is this is going to be my future because obviously you know computers are a Technology is a growing industry now here as part of the 80s economy, and this is just something that's <laughs> of interest to me. Yeah, I mean, I kind of went along with the plan that everybody, you know, guidance counselors and everyone, they were saying, you know, science is yeah, – my mom was really big on science. Like just, you know, that Thomas Dolby song where there's that voice that just goes, science. Remind me of science, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, that, that, that voice just reminds me of just, I don't know, my childhood. It's science. It's going to be <laughs> – uh, but – yeah, when, um, yeah. So I, I, mean, I always thought of it as like, oh, I find the stuff mildly interesting. I'm sort of good at it. I'll, at least I'll have a good job, and then I'll f- figure out what I want to do. And the thing I realized pretty quickly doing it though is because I've worked every shitty job you could imagine, and if you're washing dishes or something, at least you can daydream about other stuff. Correct. But the thing about engineering is it occupies your entire brain, <laughs> and so then you're not. 
you know, you, you get home and it, it kind of, then it starts to take your soul with it a little bit, which, mm-hmm. and I actually liked some of it. I mean, but yeah, that was my, my plan was, uh, I just, but, but I guess what, to answer your question, I, that was the plan, but then I pretty quickly thought like, oh man, am I just going to be doing this till I retire and I'm 60 or something like that? And I, do I really want to do that? Maybe it'll be all right. I don't know. And then I just decided I didn't want to do it anymore, but, um, nothing against people who do it. I think, uh, I, if I had had jobs that I liked more, maybe I would have stayed with it. I don't know. So what was it about animation that, cause I, I mean, my earliest, uh, my earliest exposure to you was that my roommate at the time, Will Wheaton and I would went to the Spike and Mike festival of animation at, there was a Lemley theater in Santa Monica. I don't know if it's still there. Oh yeah. He and, used to play. What, was it on Wilshire or something? Yeah, it was on. Uh, it was Montana it, or yeah, it was on. No, it was on. Um, it was on like Fourth Street. It was like it was. Oh it was, right, right, yeah. There was a Lemley there, and so we went. You know, I one, one night after class, we went and, and watched, and you know, saw uh, Frog Baseball and okay. um, and the the one that had uh, Straculius, the Roman god of feces. <laughs> um, you remember that? Yeah, I remember that, and that I was. Rem- uh... <laughs> <laughs> that no, was really not my button, best moment. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we loved it, though. We absolutely loved it. And then Actually, I, yeah, they showed the Milton shorts, and so it was. Uh, there was a, there was a, there was very much in nine. I mean, you you started at the exact right time because yeah, ninety two was right around the time when you know John Kay and yeah, and there was this whole. Uh, and liquid television, this whole renaissance of animation. Animation had really taken a nosedive between the 60s and the 80s. And there, yeah. was, there seemed to be a... I mean, in terms of quality. Yeah. And, the, and there seemed to be a return to, like, let's empower the artists. And and there was something about the, the Sick and Twisted Festival that was very much in the spirit of, like, YouTube now. Of, like, oh, oh totally, you know, yeah. make it yourself and then we'll showcase it for you. Yeah, it was, a, it was completely like this grassroots movement that was kind of happening out of, I think, I was actually, I just saw John Chris Felusi yesterday, actually, and, like, I think, you know, people our age, we saw, you know, when I was a kid, I saw the great old animation, the, you know, Chuck Jones, mm-hmm. Tex Avery, all that Warner Brothers stuff was just incredible, and then you just saw it get so bad for so long, and, uh, yeah, around the time, that was a really great time, it was it was kind of surreal. I mean, I didn't know. I was just working by myself in my house outside of Dallas and mailing these things off. I hadn't even seen them play in front of an audience. <laughs> and I was hearing about it. The Spike and Mike people were telling me, oh, it got over huge. And and then at one point, so I'd still like, I'd, I think I'd made four of them and I was just mailing them out. One of, a couple had played on Comedy Central and I was getting my stuff out there. And then they flew me out to San Diego, which was, and this the Sick and Twisted Fest was huge then. I mean, like they had Klieg lights going mm-hmm. and it was selling out, like lined up around the block. They'd have two shows and and it was so weird to go from just making these things one frame at a time by myself to seeing like Klieg lights and people just going, <laughs> yeah! Um, but uh, yeah, that that festival, I mean, to this day, I get people saying, you know, I saw, it, it reached a lot of people, I guess. Yeah. It, was, it played all over the country. And, and yeah, and that was that, thing that you don't get anymore where it was like you could only see it there and there were cartoons like you would never see anywhere like people's minds were blown because you know if if you're 
Well, if, at any age, then you wouldn't have seen anything like that. There was stuff like the uh, the Mike Grimshaw. Oh, the Grimshaw start. stuff was so Quiet brutal. Please. Was it, that, that kind of started the most, it. Yeah. I mean, it's like he clear. I, I saw Mike, Mike Grim. If if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Quiet, please. I, it's still disturbing. It is one of the, <laughs> the most. <laughs> it's, but it just it's so deliberately wrong in such a funny way that it's just. I mean, yeah. The way he, what is it? Is, yeah, there's a little baby with a little rattle, and this guy baby just with a rattle like, shut the fuck and up. And he shoots it in the head. <laughs> he kicks it, then he shoots a priest, and then he, <laughs> she's like, he, uh, oh, yeah, it's just, it's, and then it goes downhill from it there. Goes, <laughs> then it goes downhill from there, yeah. Because when we went, we attended one of the screenings where he spoke. Oh, and, you were uh, there with, yeah. And, and I, I do know him. He ended up, I ended up, he worked on, he wrote some Beavis and Butthead episodes, and he's actually really <laughs> good. He, he's a, he was a plumber in Vancouver and a really good animator. Oh, yeah. But hey, well, go go ahead. What no, did I was going like? to say. I was going to say he spoke, and and people, you know, people were like, they were asking him questions like, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" And he was like, <laughs> "What?" Like he was it was really funny. To, but yeah. but it was you know it was it was the internet before the internet. But I also think there's um, I was thinking there's I was thinking about this today that when you have to go out of your way to to consume something like now, if yeah. there was a, if you know, if you, if you just started now and you put, you know, Milton or Beavis and Butthead or or, or Inbred Jed or whatever on YouTube, it's very possible that it, it could it would still get a following. But people just, I think, because content is so disposable now, and people yeah. don't have to exert any effort to get it. But there was so much value in making the decision to leave our houses, go to the theater, experience something new and different that no one yeah. else could see anywhere, know that it was special, know that we were in on something that felt private but communal. Um, it had such tremendous value, and we would, you know, we went back as many times as we could to watch the same festival over and over again, and then, you know, every so often when it would come through town, there was so much value in the oh, fact yeah. that we had to be. To actively consume it as opposed to what I think a lot of people do now is passively consume, where they just don't necessarily, you know, it's like, oh, I, you know, we're, we're spoiled now with convenience yeah. and, and entertainment. I know it's, I mean, I'm, I sit there on YouTube all day myself, but I do, <laughs> I do miss it. Like, I used to go to every, there, were, there was another festival besides that that uh, was called the Animation Celebration that yeah. would play in Dallas, and I would go every time. And it, also, there was something pretty cool that you, Seeing that stuff on a big screen projected, like cell animation shot on film projected, is just an amazing. I just think it looks incredible or stop motion, and you don't, you don't get that, you know, on YouTube. But but still, it's the other problem with YouTube is that first Office Space Milton short I did, which I, I did the lip sync bite with a stopwatch, which I, I may be the only person who's ever done this that I know of. Like timed every syllable on exposure sheets, where in it, and that's all talking that mm-hmm. whole thing, and so it it. It took it's pretty meticulous work. I got it. I nailed it. It all all was there. I was like, oh, this is amazing. I can't believe I got this to work. And now it's on YouTube for everyone to see out of sync. Like it's like oh. a second off. And oh. like, just like oh, for all my grandchildren and great grandchildren, it's like all that work. A few people saw it on. It was on SNL correctly, and so, and now it's on YouTube out of sync. Great. So was it? So uh, it, was it the Spike and Mike festivals that sort of. Um was that did that kind of launch everything? Did that connect you to well, MTV and? Um, actually, not. It, it all kind of happened at once. Like Spike, Spike and Mike ran this one of the first ones I did before Beavis and Butthead, and then um, 
I actually sent them a storyboard for Frog Baseball, and they weren't interested. And then I did he had, they had some other thing. I did another one. I did two more, and then um, I just told them I'm going to make this anyway. Um, and then, and so then he he said, okay, well then I'll you know I'll pay you to license it. But um, it, around that time, I was getting I, I was just get like Comedy Central was interested in doing the Milton stuff, and then I had uh, um, Liquid Television. There was a show called Liquid yeah, Television. Yeah, MTV. Yeah. So they how are they finding it though? The, oh, I, I just mailed it to him. Oh, you there, there sent was, it to yeah, you I, I was I was sending out VHS tapes. I was literally <laughs> I had I called information and just you know MTV and I just called around and bugged people until someone would give me an address. But actually, Liquid Television had an ad in Animation Magazine saying send stuff, um, and uh, so I just sent it to them uh, a tape of my my stuff. So so yeah, it was really just sending out tapes, and I think. I think, you know, probably people in entertainment would get tons of tapes of, I don't know, people doing whatever, scripts. But mine actually had a, I had a crazy drawing of a character I called Inbred Jed on the side of the VHS. And I think yeah. it said homemade cartoons. I think I had a feeling that would get, they don't get a lot of homemade <laughs> cartoons. And I thought that would get attention, and it did. I mean, I got, like, within my first, like, mailing out, like, I don't know, 15 tapes. Within, like, a couple of weeks, I was getting all these calls. So... Yeah, I kept thinking, why did I go to college with a <laughs> physics degree? I work as an engineer. I should have just done this when I was 17. And Were you able to apply any of the things you learned in engineering to... Um, some of the misery of working in cubicles I used for material <laughs> later. <laughs> you know what, what's, what's, really, what's really interesting to me about it, like <clears throat> everything you do kind of uh, it puts a very specific subculture under a microscope, whether it's an office environment or whether it's like a, you know, like a TGI Fridays or, <laughs> or, or even, you know, sort of the dumbing down of America and kind of douche culture or, you know, or these little Hesher kids or rednecks, <laughs> you know. I mean, I still, yeah. you know, for, for, for years... Will and I would quote, you know, we would do the the inbred Jed. You would start, and he would be laughing in the thing and the oh, cackling. Wow, you saw that, yeah. yeah. And then like the, play some Skinner, and then with the guy like spits at <laughs> his girlfriend, like he spits and it just hits her on yeah. the, it just kind of like catches her on the side. He spits the chew out. I mean, it's like we we quoted that stuff for ages, but there's there's something you're able to find. You're able to zero in on some really amazingly authentic piece of a subculture <laughs> and you know maybe maybe engineering or maybe like maybe understanding code or figuring out i mean it's almost like you're almost like coding culture <laughs> in a weird sort of I could way be. i never thought of it that way but yeah maybe i mean uh, yeah i guess i guess that's just the stuff i'm drawn to i i don't um yeah i've and i, I also my other career was i was a musician and toured all over the country and i think you, you sort of when you're playing in a lot of different towns, you start to see how much how there's these there are these kind of archetypes, and that there's it's like oh, it's that guy in the bar who's like that, or it's that you know like there's there's a lot of uh, things are kind of the same everywhere. It's kind of funny <laughs> in a lot that, of ways. It's, it's kind the, of funny that, that there are consistencies, yeah, from seemingly unrelated regions. Right. Yeah. And, and I I think even like King of the Hills set in Texas, but I think you know you can be in Michigan and there's Guys standing around staring at a truck engine, drinking beer, and you know, it's, <laughs> and 
anywhere where there are white people and engines and lawnmowers. <laughs> we just like to stay yeah, near them yeah. as a, to celebrate the fact that we've mastered the machine. <laughs> exactly. But I would imagine when... Um, so Beavis and Butthead, I assume, spun out of Liquid Television. Did that? Was, did Liquid Television start the conversation for this for the series? Yeah, they. they I'm um, sure MTV was like, "Here's five dollars." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it went from it went through different levels of people trying to rip me off. It, went, it started with <laughs> Liquid Television, who I guess they. I kind of found this out later. They had the right to. To, they had the first right to negotiate with any of the things that they had licensed, I guess. So it, I was getting all these weird cryptic calls from liquid television people. There was this guy, with a, he was this British guy who was very kind of kind of insulting to me. Like he, he was saying, like he'd say, you know, um, MTV wants to buy these characters, believe it or not. <laughs> so, and he was... <laughs> what? Oh, he was was that last part shit. necessary, sir? Yeah, you're like insulted me and then he kind of like and then tried to rip me off he sent me this contract that was just and i said okay i'm interested in doing something with mtv for sure and he sends me this contract and i just i called him i said well obviously i can't sign this this is like they, they would own everything for the right they would own everything and they would pay me like uh something like four thousand dollars to do two more two-minute shorts, which they would, at the time, doing everything myself, doing a two-minute short would take me, like, eight weeks. So that was, like, a lot of work for $2,000 each. Right. And that, anyway, so I just said, I can't do this. And then he was like, well, I thought we had an agreement. <laughs> and this, and then, so I finally, <laughs> I blew them off. And then what happened, then they, that guy... So they then it was just over and then but what MTV was doing I guess they if they waited a certain amount of time then they could call me directly so they that so then they started calling me directly and then there was that level of horrible contrast <laughs> <laughs> well I guess you know you've, <laughs> you've experienced that I did but you know I, I only experienced it as a host I didn't create any IP that like that changed our culture so it's well it's you know I feel, yeah, like, no. I feel like you probably got a way shorter end of the deal than I like I, I don't yeah know. I did I mean that what happened though was they, they had they had this um I mean I guess the next thing they they I didn't know they even wanted to do a show. They were always very cryptic. I thought they were just going to do those animated IDs, and and I'd already done a um, little bumper for the VMAs, you know, the Video Music Awards. Um, but they, yeah. So I did a deal with them where they bought the characters for uh, not a whole lot of money. But uh, <laughs> but also I knew I wasn't gonna. What was I going to do by myself? I was like I said, it'd take me eight minutes to do a couple of these, and I thought, oh, maybe I'll do one more, and then. That's it. I don't have that many ideas for Beavis and Butthead. That's what I thought. <laughs> but then, then uh, so then they bought it, and then they said we're going to make a show. But then they needed me to do the show. It was all very weird, and that's why the show was really spotty the first season. Like I didn't, they didn't know what they were doing. I didn't realize that I was in charge right away. I, it, it was all very odd. But um, they, their lawyer had all the, uh, she had all the, the bad intentions of a good lawyer but she wasn't very good at she had left some big holes in the contract and there was like so later on i was able to re renegotiate and i remember at one point um i found out that i was making more money than tabitha soren so <laughs> i said okay 
That's fair. That was a big... <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. yeah, because you had no. You know, MTV was such this strange, um, this this weird wasteland of like, well, I don't know. There's not really any rules because this was, you know, like the, the, yeah. the that 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 type of cable model was still fairly new and so it didn't really yeah and they had at that point they had really they had just about never done a, an actual show they'd definitely not done an animated show so it was you know like they just said okay do 35 episodes and um here's some promo writers to help you out and some of them were actually really good um but yeah it was it, no one knew what they were doing they hired an, a guy who had to do the animation, they didn't even have an animation company. They hired this guy who had only done commercials, and he just he didn't know what he was doing. And it it took a while. I the first season, if it was an episode that I liked, I would first couple seasons I would spend a lot of time on those, and then the ones I didn't like, I'd go, "That's going to suck anyway. I'll just <laughs> let that one go." And there's some really good ones and really bad ones. I feel like, but yeah, it was they. Eventually, it sorted itself out, but um, yeah, that was a weird place. When, when did Singled Out happen? Was that ninety five to yeah. ninety eight? So they it was were just, starting it was to just like right people after people were starting to not watch videos already. To, I mean, by the time Beavis and Butthead came along, like VH 1s ratings apparently were lower than the Preview Guide. <laughs> oh yeah, that's why like, they started. That's why those channels started programming. People were like, "You guys don't show music videos anymore." And, it's like, and the answer not was, watching well, them. "Yes, you're not watching them." <laughs> yeah. yeah, but they're like they're you know they're 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 a, a capitalist organization. If you watch something, they will make more of yeah, that it's thing. Like if a, you don't watch, they will make less of it's that. More thing. of a democracy than democracy. <laughs> and yeah, and, and but I think the other isn't I don't maybe you know but like apparently the Nielsen's you would have to. I guess people were watching music videos, but they were flipping back and forth. So, like, you have to be parked on it for a whole 15 minutes, I guess, to register. Oh, is that what the... I, I, I remember hearing that. I don't know if that's true anymore, but... But, um, yeah, then... And I, I don't even know what they are now, but... Did you feel... I mean, when you said, well, I don't know what... I don't know how far I can go with these guys. Did you... Uh, how, how... What was it that, when you started the process, that made you find who they were and how far you could go with them and what their, what their personalities were going to end up being. I think, um, I started to, I, I've, you know, at that point I'd never, I'd done four or five animated shorts. I'd never done a show. I'd never tried to write a show or anything like that. So I think I didn't realize really that, um, I guess where it's, where I started to get a second wind was, was talking over the videos and, Especially the voice of Beavis, like all, all he had done in the first two shorts that I'd, he just kind of grunted and so I just imagined him as this fry brain guy who just kind of is like, yeah, yeah. and uh, <laughs> and I, I didn't, and then I started to just kind of, and being forced to just come up with stuff for these videos, I start, it's, it was like I was doing this weird puppet show or something. I started, I don't know, I just started to kind of develop a personality for Beavis, and then it, I don't know, it just started to started to take shape and I've had that happen a couple like the th after the second I think it was a, like the third season I was just thinking I can't do this anymore I, this is we'd done however many 75 episodes and I, and and then I got another second wind and came up with this cornholio thing and all that stuff <laughs> and, 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 uh, so I but I it's just I realized you, you, you just can't look at it like like yeah yeah that one was that was that was a, a weird one. Where did that second <laughs> wind? Where did that? Where did the Cornholio wind come from? That was. Um, <laughs> I don't. You know, it was. Uh, I had just had this 
vision kind of in the middle of the night that Beavis should just pull his shirt over his head and just go crazy. I, I kept thinking at some point I should have Beavis really completely go crazy because I was starting to kind of hint at it. And then um, I was actually out here in L.A. during the earthquake in 94. And I remember that night I was with a couple people. We were at the Ace Awards, and a friend of mine, for some reason we just started saying the word mustache in an accent. I don't know what we were talking. We were being really silly and saying mustachio and mustachio. It, it's not funny at all. It was at the time, but <laughs> but uh, then the the uh, then I went back to LA. I don't know. The earthquake might have knocked something loose in my brain or something. <laughs> but I came back to New York and we were recording an episode where they were uh, the hippie teacher was talking about corn and it's Indians call it maize and I, there was some line that I didn't like and I, and I just decided to have Beavis pull up. Pull a shirt over his head and just say, "I just it just came out of my mouth while I was recording." I'm Cornholio, and and then so that was before the Cornholio episode. And then we just we had we were one script short. We used to re- do them in groups of five, and that one uh, Chris Brown, who worked with me at the time, I just said, "Hey, I'm let's try to do that. I'll just go in and record an episode without a script. Just go make it up as I go along." And he kind of helped me with it. He he kind of wrote that intro i think and then the rest of it i i just kind of winged it so i was just going to try that just for the hell of it see if i could do a a, an episode that was just completely kind of (laughs) improv in the booth (laughs) so that was that's how that came about i just kind of made it up and i was doing the voices of all the teachers and the principals so I, i just went through and just did it so i mean it's amazing that if you even if you don't know where you're going to end up, if you have, if you at least have some faith in the process of like, well, when I get there, maybe the right thing will come out. I mean, like you don't, yeah, you couldn't have planned that, and it, and it just, you know, you don't, and you don't know at the time. I mean, like when you're in there saying I'm Cornholio, you don't, it does, <laughs> yeah. it's not occurring to you like this is going to be on T-shirts for 20 years. Like you, you know, yeah, you're, probably I not, you're like, oh my god, this, what am I? This is so silly. Yeah, I remember I was. Uh, I was a little embarrassed, even, to, but at this point, the, the show was a hit, and I thought, uh, "Who cares? I'm just going to do something really weird." And I, and I, uh, and actually, Beavis and Butthead was the fourth short I did, and I remember that. My thought then was, "I'm just okay. I've done three of these. I got them in festivals and on TV. I'm just going to do a really weird one just for fun." And that was Beavis and Butthead. And it, so the Cornholio episode was like that. I just and our, our layout supervisor Diane Sparagano. I, I remember I, I went to her. That I, I think. That she, They'd seen the there was there was no script and so uh, she I don't know if she she was asking me she, she needed a title and she go what's the title of this one that you guys you know that you made up in the booth and I said, uh, and I just said it's called the Great Cornholio and <laughs> she just started laughing and uh, and then everybody you know all that we would sit with the artists we would listen to the track and have a storyboard meeting and and they were all just laughing really hard and I was, and I was describing what he would be doing and. And uh, so I, I thought maybe we were on to something at that point. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I, from the beginning, like if you think of it as, you know, when they said, okay, we're going to do 65 episodes, that's just completely daunting. But I think what happens, I've heard stand-up comedians say this a lot of times when you're on the microphone in front of people, things can come to you that just because of the yeah. you know, urgency of it. And, yeah. and, and I think that that happens to me when I would get in the, booth and record like it's a similar thing i guess from the way i've heard comedians describe it whereas if i was going to sit there and just go okay think up 
this many episodes or this many comments over videos. I, it, it helps me to just get in there and just do it. Um, so I think, and also just to, it's like the, the alcoholics mentality of, you know, one day at a time. Like, like I just go, okay, I'm, I'm not going to think of 65 episodes. I'm just going to figure out this episode and then worry about the next one later. And yeah, I mean, that's literally all you can do anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But I, it, 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 it took me a little while to, to realize that and not, you know, stress out and have anxiety attacks. Well, that filter, that, that process that you're talking about, if I think the, I think the writing comes from, I don't know if it's that it comes from a different place where you sit down to write versus you go on stage or you go in a booth and you just start churning out stuff. But, you know, when you sit down to write, there's a filtering process because your brain is trying to sort through, oh, well, this, no, that's dumb. But when you're, when they're like, they turn the line and they go, okay, go. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You don't really have time to, it just, like, whatever nuggets just come out and you don't, there's no fear anymore, there's no censoring. And I think that's 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 where the ore is, you know. Yeah, that, I feel like that as well, especially for Beavis and Butthead. For me, that was that was the case. Then when uh, did were you surprised? Because everything that you've done, it's like, oh well, you know, I just decided to go work in uh, in computers, and then you know, you had a career doing that. You worked as you worked in you know, you majored in physics. You toured the country playing bass, you know, like you, everything that it seems like, oh, I just decided to dabble in. Like you've really managed to, to yeah, I guess really, it, really, well, see through. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, they, I guess they, in a way though, they were sort of like music, something I've always done. You know, I don't know, since like fifth grade, I've always played music. A lot of people in my family do. So that was, that was something like I was doing, I was playing gigs when I was in college and while I was working engineering. So I didn't, you know, but yeah, when I started and then I guess engineering is kind of the same way. Animation was the one thing that I just kind of, I'd always wanted to try and I used to do flip book stuff when I was a kid, but I, I did, that was one thing I did just pick up late in life, kind of out of the blue. I mean, not out of the blue, but I had never had any training or never, you know. But what's your figure it out process, right? Because everything that you've done is not super easy to just pick up. So obviously you, in the same way that I think that you were able to comedically uh, dissect a subculture, you're, you seem to be able to break down, oh, well, if I just do this and this and this. Like, there, there's something about your brain that's able to dissect a process and figure it out. Yeah, I think uh, I think people in my family have a uh, there's you know other science people and engineers just have this thing about wanting to figure out how everything works and uh my dad's that way my my uncle um and actually i remember my my uh uncle ned when i was a kid i was just him explaining how animation works and and uh that when he was a kid he had a super 8 camera and he used to make stop motion stuff and and uh i just I don't know why it took me so long to try it. <laughs> waited, <laughs> waited till I was like, I think I was 26 when I even started animating. Um, but, uh, and that was just going, I went to the library and got books on it. I, I uh, the same festivals you're talking about, well, the animation celebration played at the Inwood theater in Dallas. And there was a guy named Paul Clairhout who was a local guy who had gotten a film in there. So it was films from all around the world. And I just thought, wow, there's a guy in my town who did this. I bet I could do it and uh, just went and got books on it, figured out 
that I could, I bought a Bolex movie camera for 200 bucks and just started, just started doing it. Did it, did you ever, was it weird when you started to get to the point, because now you're also a very famous voiceover actor, <laughs> which is just part, you know. I, well, that's another thing, but I mean, that's something that since, I mean, in in a way, like I had always wanted to do sketch comedy. I did imitations, and I actually think I peaked in high school, my senior year of high school. <laughs> I did pretty good imitations of the teachers, and and it and it, uh, and then in in college too. I just never was around anybody else to. I mean, I had a friend in high school that uh, this guy Tony Darling. He was, and he had gone which to me is one of the bravest things in Albuquerque. This was way before the stand-up comedy thing had caught on and was in strip malls. Like nobody did it other than LA and New York. And he went on at his talent show in Albuquerque high and, and then got booked into some clubs and he did it like three or four times and then bombed once and never did it again. Oh, wow. And, and, but, but we used to talk about doing stuff together, but, um, you know, I moved and then, and then there was like, it just, there was never, it's, I didn't know how to put it together because I'm just I, I needed other people and you know I'm not good at convincing anybody to do anything. So <laughs> when I, animation, when I for I'd always wanted to try it, but for some reason those two things came together. I thought like maybe this is a way to get into sketch comedy because I could be like the Terry Gilliam of a sketch show. I'll right. the, you know animate these shorts and that maybe that can get me into writing and doing characters and stuff. So so that was that was really what I was looking to do and I I. Uh, I actually got I sent it I sent a a tape of one of my first tapes to the kids in the hall and they actually called me. And, oh shit. Uh, yeah, this blew my mind. My phone rings in Dallas and it's it it was Scott Thompson and I think Bruce McCullough. And um yeah, so I it was uh that that was so it was kinda like, you know, the voiceover thing was I I, I knew I was better at that than I am at drawing. And <laughs> so I I mean I thought I could I thought I could do some put together some funny characters. What did you, did, did anything pan out with kid with the kids in the hall? Uh, actually they sort of ripped it off a little bit. Uh-oh, they had a, uh-oh. they had a guy, they had a character Bruce McCullough played was just short sleeves and a tie. And he's like, where's my pen? Oh, my pen, my pen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's not a, it's, I was, you know, I'm also kind of flattered, but, um, but, uh, yeah, no, they just were calling to say they liked it. And, uh, I was, I was just on the phone, like trying to, keep them on the phone and go, <laughs> we'll go. <laughs> so can I, can I send other stuff to you guys? And he's, Oh yeah, send it to our producer. And they gave me an address. And, but, uh, but then by that point I was starting to get a lot of, uh, starting to get calls from, you know, MTV and some other, other places. Was, was it a, uh, was it a relief to go work on King of the Hill after being, because I would imagine MTV is very guerrilla style and it's under, you know, it's like you're trying to do everything yourself and then to go and have the infrastructure of, a te- of an, an actual net, like a, like a real yeah. network. It was, I mean, they definitely, it was a relief to not, I mean, but at that point Beavis and Butthead was, had gotten to where it was running fairly well, never as well as King of the Hill was run, but it was, it was like, you know, we had a staff of, I don't know, 40 layout, you know, animators, layout artists. We were, it was, it was going pretty well at that point, but yeah, King of the Hill was, you know, Fox had been doing the Simpsons for a few years and they just knew how to do it. They, they had a, you know, they, it was film Roman and it was done right. It's like model sheets, just the way you're supposed to do an animated show. Not, 
not the way it was thrown together on <laughs> MTV. But uh, yeah, I mean that. On one hand, yeah, that was that was a relief, but it was also a little bit more network interference kind of stuff. A little more is a little more of the development process, which I didn't like so much. But uh, but the good Greg Daniels, who I partnered with it on, he, he had just been on the Simpsons. So he was very good at keeping the network at bay and kind of, cause the Simpsons was a really powerful show. They, you know, they didn't, Jim Brooks kind of kept the network off their back. So, so Greg was kind of used to that, but it was still a lot more network interference than I was used to. I mean, it's funny that you say like, Oh, you know, draw, you, you made some reference to your drawing, not being your strong suit or something. But, but, I, but, but what's so interesting about that is that just because it's not, done in a what you know like in a chuck jones where everything is yeah constructed around a skeleton you know it's like but you actually it's a style like you have a very specific style that was different than anything else that it was and, and it was the soul of like diy it's obvious this yeah. guy's doing it himself and that makes it special i mean i do i i do like what i draw i'm not like i don't mean to put it down and what like i i actually in fact i was so picky about the way Beavis and Butthead looked. I, I, by the time I got the show, like the Beavis and Butthead movie is how I wanted them to look, and and uh, or or some of the episodes like from, you know, some in the first. Anyway, it, but like, I I actually made everybody trace or Xerox their heads. I drew I drew their heads in every position in their mouths and everything, so that it, it has to be, look like this. I did a walk cycle. This is how they need to walk. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I. When I was in college, or actually started in high school, I would get National Lampoon magazine and just thought it was the funniest thing ever. And I, and they, there was cartoons in there that were that's the first time I'd seen stuff that drawn in kind of a weird loose style, and it had so much character than something that just comes out of an animation factory. And, right. And you'd see stuff like um, Mary Kay Brown, um, Buddy Hickerson, all these like great Mark Merrick, I think was his name. There's a uh, uh, Mimi Pond. Uh, all these great um, Linda Berry, uh, like these really cool, kind of crudely look, look, looked like a teenager drew them in their notebook, you know. Right. And I just thought, like, why can't that stuff be animated? That's what I, all the stuff in that National Lampoon that I just loved, like, and then Drew Friedman and Bill Griffith, all these great, so many great cartoonists. And I just thought, why can't someone animate this? Something that's that that interesting, that well written, that, that that looks that cool. And so that's what I was trying to do is to get to capture that kind of spirit in animation and it it was starting to happen already like i mean i mean i think ren stimpy is like the greatest animation of my time but but i also like stuff like uh at at the same time the simpsons was in the tracy ullman show um mary Kay brown she goes by mk brown had something called dr nagatu which is just about impossible to google cuz she spelled it with an exclamation point in the middle of it <laughs> but i really loved that those shorts too, because they were just kind of, they were drawn in, in her style, which I kind of was, when I did the Milton cartoon, I was kind of thinking of Dr. Nagatu, but they were, it was color pencils and, and it was just people talking at a table and it was just really funny, dry stuff. And, and, uh, so, so yeah, that's, I mean, that's how it, I was trying to do that kind of stuff. And so I, I do like the way, you know, I say I can't draw, like I can't draw mountains and buildings and stuff like i i I like the way i draw faces but uh i'm not like if someone goes hey here draw me i'm I'm not i didn't (laughs) i'm not you're not a character it takes me a while yeah (laughs) sometimes i I have to i have to 
be in the I, I don't draw that much anymore, but it's it's sometimes the mood strikes me and I I can draw faces, but I can't, you know, I'm not good at like, hey, draw a horse. Did it freak you out to be all of a sudden someone that people would run up to on the street and be like, do Hank Hill, do Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> you know, like basically start treating you like a puppet in, in real life. Uh, yeah, that would happen sometimes. No one knows what I look like. And so I, I really don't get recognized that often. Um, but yeah, there was, a, there was a while where I was in a, actually was in the office on Beavis and Butthead and I'm just walking down the hall in the middle of a crazy day and the UPS guy is just like standing in front of me and, and like, he just goes, do it. <laughs> like do what I don't know what he's talking about like, I'll laugh and I just like okay, and then he starts laughing and I just walk on <laughs> yeah I've had some some weird moments but yeah, I don't get recognized that much did you uh, did you did you feel that was it was it a daunting task or was it easier to start doing live action from animation. Was it freeing? It was like, oh, I don't have to time everything on a sheet before I can actually... Just- yeah, it's, yeah, there's definitely... Actually, one of the things that really jumped out at me that is... Because especially when you're, when you're working with a, on a show with, in animation, when I was doing it all myself was one thing when, it was a, when they were shows and there's all these other people drawing it. A lot of what I'd be doing, it's like, you know, whack-a-mole. It's like get rid of... Someone just put some stupid smiley face on on butthead or, you know, like, or some Hanna-Barbera face on Hank Hill and go, you know, just saying, okay, don't do that. Don't do that. Like you'd, you'd have a really good storyboard animatic. And then there's always somebody who could screw it up somewhere. And the thing, like one of the first, when I started shooting office space, I was like, Oh, that was great. And now no one's going to go draw a ridiculous <laughs> smile on Lumberg or <laughs> Steven Root's face. We, you know, like, like we have that. That's, that's in the can. That's no one can screw it up now. And that's, you know. Yeah, but you're also relinquishing. I mean, it's yeah. That's you're, the other you're, side you're, of it. You're relinquishing because you're essentially the cast of everything that you've done up to that point, and now yeah. you're you're placing your you, you know you're creating a relationship with with you know with Stephen or Gary Cole or you know or or about like well this is the thing in my head now you yeah. do your version of that is was that weird or did you did were you able to let that go? I mean. That was like, I had sort of eased into that because like on King of the Hill, there were a lot of, uh, we had a lot of really good actors. On Beavis and Butt, I did most of the voices myself and occasionally people would come in. But King of the Hill, it was like, you know, Stephen Root, Kathy and Jimmy, you know, Dave Herman, all these, Johnny Hardwick, these, so I was working with other actors. So I kind of, kind of got, kind of learned about, you know, working with actors on that a little bit. Um, But yeah, it was, you know, I'm not like... I mean, to me, the casting process is my least favorite part of it when you're, I, I, I mean, I, I, sitting through casting sessions because it's just, I mean, they're looking for any sign on your face of how they did. And sometimes they're really good, but they're not right for the part. You want to tell them that, but that's going to sound just like bullshit. And right. You, so it's, it's, uh, but you know, once you get good actors or people who are right for the part, I think. I don't. I mean, I I, th- I felt like when Gary Cole came in and read for Lumberg for Office Space, I just thought, oh my god, this is so good. This is like this is better than what I. He was sort of imitating what I had done in the cartoons, but it was. I thought it was just another level up from what I had done. And and same thing with Stephen Root playing Milton. I just thought, wow, this is this could be something really 
special here. And, and so, yeah, I mean, sometimes, yeah, it's I, going from animation to that. Yeah. Sometimes I have this urge to just be more controlling and just say, no, say, you know, give them line readings and things that you're not <laughs> supposed to do. But I, I, I think, uh, there, there's like, it's almost, uh, the grass is always greener on the other side. Like it, middle of shooting Silicon Valley last season, I was just thinking, God, I should just do animation again. <laughs> These 16 hour days of an animation. You don't have to get up at five thirty in the morning and come to a, you know, like you can, you can kind of, you know, you can work late if you have to get up early if you want to. I mean, you, you it, it's not like, it's not like you have 50 people and teamsters and trucks and everything waiting for you. And if you're 15 minutes late, it costs the production a ton of money. And there's right. all these people twiddling their thumbs. You know, it's it's more pressure. Live action, you know, it's it's more immediate and it's a lot more pressure. But that can be kind of good, too. That can be kind of invigorating. And How did you not cast yourself in more prominent roles, like in Office Space? How did you not play any well, of the main... I mean, you're in it. But... Yeah, I mean, originally, like we were talking about, because I'd done Lumberg and... Milton in the shorts um, about me playing one of those, and but I, I was, I, I actually at the first table read, I was going to read the part of Milton, the first read through of the of the script, and Stephen Root was there to to play the hypnotist and a couple other people, and just at the last minute, I just thought like, I don't think I want to, I think Stephen Root should do this. Like I knew him well enough at that point, I just and I just took him in the other room and showed him a tape of the shorts and I remember seeing him watch the TV and he's like rewinding it and he's just starting to starting to just mutter and do this thing and I said yeah this is great let's and and then he just killed it and so I knew he was going to be Milton and yeah I didn't um I was kind of hesitant about even casting myself as the as the manager at the Tchotchke's place but that was really just kind of I'd I'd written that those scenes sort of last minute and had a bunch of people read for him and no one was doing it. Everyone was kind of trying too hard to put comedy into it instead of just playing it as a passive aggressive boss. And so I just, I just decided to play that one more out of necessity really. (laughs) (laughs) I still use that. I mean, I I use that platitude now of I'll say if something like it's like with the if I'm writing jokes or is there something on the show and it's just like two jokes too many I was like go oh, too much flair like I still <laughs> like I you I I actually still use that as a there's too much there's too much flair you know and yeah that was a that was a real that was a real thing that TGA Fridays had it's they a, called it pieces of flair and you had to wear fifty you had to there was you they didn't have yeah. enough flair I was working with uh, Brent Forrester, who's a really good writer, and he was on King of the Hill, and, and he was in Austin. And he, I just said, uh, I said, hey, if you get a chance, because I was kind of too chicken to go into the TGI Fridays and ask them. I had written the thing about the, we're not in Kansas anymore. Right. And I said, you know, they, they all wear those buttons, and they clearly must have to. They don't do those on their own. There must be some corporate thing that says wear some buttons. And, <laughs> and, uh, he was about to fly back, and he was at my studio, and I said, hey, did you ever, did you ever make it to TGI Fridays? And he said, oh, yeah. And I said, so what's the buttons? He said, yeah, they, they're required to wear 15 of them, but everybody, like, <laughs> and a hat can count as flair. And a, and a, so, so if you have suspenders and a hat, then you, you've got 13 left that you have to <laughs> buttons that you have to put on. Anyway, and, they, and that's where that 
came from and but um yeah i i and i and i and i i i and i like to use the opposite to dress down something that has too much of that it's like this doesn't need 15 jokes yeah there's too much a flair in this thing it's uh I mean, it, it, Such it, it, an odd term, piece it, of flair. Piece of flair. But it's about <laughs> noticing, you know, it's really just about noticing those little bits of authentic things that actually happen that people, you know, obviously people had noticed that. No one had pointed it out yet. You know, people yeah, notice I, that without realizing that they're noticing it. Yeah, I guess I tune into a lot of that stuff that just, you know, um, and maybe that's kind of a, a cartoonist thing. Like, like, you know, Robert Crumb used to talk about and draw like all these the transformers on telephone poles, all these ugly things that are everywhere that, you know, were never really built to be looked at, but they're just in our face all the time. And yeah, this is, those kind of details, I guess, interest me for whatever reason. Did you, uh, I, I've been a fan of Silicon Valley since minute one, episode one, N- not, not only because you're involved, but a bunch of my friends are also involved, oh, yeah, yeah. but it also just happens to be, I mean, like watching, it's like watching everyone fire on all of their cylinders Together, it's yeah, like the, they're a the, great the, ensemble. The the writing and then the and then the the performance and where they take it and and then all of them already knowing each other and working together like it's yeah. it's it's such a it's a very rare special thing that happened with that show. Yeah, I feel like it's it really all clicked like it fell into place. And I mean, I when I was doing the casting, um, I think I might have said this to you when we were on the that panel but like i everybody um let's see zach josh brenner uh martin star kumail um they all read for tj's part everybody except for thomas all the main guys and but they all had a different way of doing it and uh and i had no idea these guys knew each other i had worked with tj before and thomas did some voices on beavis and butthead and there was an animated thing that i was helping him develop a few years ago but I didn't even know those two knew each other, let alone everybody else. It, so it was cast purely on auditions, but um, it just, it all came, they, well, each of them had their own kind of version of a nerd, their own interpretation of reading when they were reading for Ehrlich. And uh, so I thought, okay, like, especially like Martin Starr, when he came in and read, I thought, okay, that's something really unique. That's like a, that's, that's like the guys that were hanging out at the computer center at UCSD who are kind of arrogant and prickly and, <laughs> and uh, hate everybody. And, you know, like, I thought, like, wow, if I could, that's, that's something really good, but it's not Ehrlich. Let's just have it be this other. Uh, John Altschuler had talked about having a Satanist character, which I thought was really funny. And so, so I thought, let's make him that. And then Kumail was just great. I, I thought, okay, let's just make a character and it's going to be Kumail's character and so it was and then went back and rewrote it to kind of suit these this ensemble you know and um yeah really uh i feel like it's i don't know it's like the rolling stones or something like everybody they're all it just all clicks as a as a group really well well and that that character is such a dominant it to me it feels like a very dominant part of t of who tj is yeah, where it's just like you never know exactly how he's going to come. I mean, and I, I adore TJ. He's, yeah. <laughs> I absolutely love him, and he's going to come back on the podcast really oh, cool. soon. But he is a tornado of of energy and, oh, and I ideas. Know. Yeah, I mean, no, he's he's the guy was just born funny. He he just it, he I'd done a, a small movie with him came out in two thousand nine, and he had 
you know, both that and this, he, he, he auditioned for, and I, it wasn't how I imagined it in my head, but he's just so funny. And, and we, and again, actually with this, like when he, okay, you know, we said, let's make him Ehrlich. And then we sort of wrote for TJ, you know, kind of tailored it to him. And, you know, he, he, uh, I mean, he's just so funny. I remember I was showing the first episode to my, my brother who's lived in Japan forever and, he didn't know. He'd never seen T.J. Miller. He hadn't seen the movie I'd done in 2009. And I, I just show him the scene, and T.J. just walks around the corner into the room, hasn't even spoken yet. My brother like just goes, oh, that guy's funny. <laughs> <laughs> and there was nothing. You know, he's got that, uh, it's almost like Bill Murray or something, you know. He just, he's, he's just funny. I don't know. He, he uh, yeah, a really talented guy. But, um, yeah, they all, they're, uh, you know. They're a handful. (laughs) (laughs) How, what was just, it's, you know, however you want to, I'm sure you've told this a million times before, but I just want to know. Oh, sure. How did you get to the, the season, the first season finale? As soon as I saw, as soon as I started to sense where the, the greatest dick joke in the history of entertainment was beginning to unfold. I was, I mean, I, I spit like my mouth, like, no, they're not. Oh my God. Like completely. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was pounding like, I can't believe this. Is the I mean, like watching that, watching that unfold because it's, I mean, not only is it just, not only is it an incredibly layered, the, like, like the kind of, just like wrapping everything up in a beautiful dick-shaped bow. <laughs> but also, I'm sure you probably heard from a lot of, uh, you know, coders, like, oh, well, that's the kind of shit that we, that's the kind yeah, of yeah. shit that actually you spend your time thinking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of, um, yeah, when I, when I was in college, you know, especially when you're like, you know, you're, staring at the Schrodinger equation forever or something. And you just start, you, you, it's very easy to just go to something really stupid and, (laughs) but then you'll start nerding out on that. But yeah, that, that came about, um, when, when we started out, we were talking about, you know, we were at some point we were talking about the season finale and I kept saying that I wanted to have some kind of beautiful mind moment, like, you know, in that movie where he, it, his thing is about the way men and women are in bars, but if, with something silly or some kind of epiphany over something really dumb, you know, I didn't know what it was, but, um, one of the writers, uh, Matteo Borges was talking, not even, he was just having a conversation with somebody. Alec was in the room. I wasn't there and it, it wasn't pitching for the show. He was just talking about, him and his roommate saying that you could actually jack off four guys at once if they put their dicks tip to tip. And Alec then came to me and said, I, th- I think I've got, well, what do you think about this? And I, I just thought, oh my God, that could just be, that's perfect. Like it's, and then we just, um, we just started, we actually sat in the writer's room. I remember Dan O'Keefe and I were in there talking about angles and this and that. And then Alec came in and he started chiming in. And I think Clay Tarver was there, came in next. And we were just really drawing on the boards and doing all that stuff that they're doing in the, in the room. Um, 
a lot of that was just us. We were really having those exact, like, you know, like, no, it's actually the distance to floor, and it's actually the, if a taller guy, but if the complimentary shaft angle and all this stuff. And then, uh, and we had, and then we, um, we just kept getting just, just juvenile schoolboy conversations that we just kept having it. We, we were having, we, we'd be trying to solve some other problem with the story, and then, oh, let's talk about the dicks again. I'm ashamed at the, at the number of dick jokes that I will write. The, that's, the, you know, it's unfortunately where my brain always goes, and I'm, I'm always disappointed in myself until I see something like that, and then I feel and I'm like, oh, see? It can be, you know, like you can, yeah. you can, you can make a, you, you can build a gorgeous you know, a, a gorgeous structure that just happens to be tied together with little dicks. <laughs> you know, like it, it yeah. it's, you, you can have the most highbrow, it's just the disparity between the most highbrow thing in the world <laughs> and the lowest brow thing in the world. And, but they yeah. need each other in order to work and solve the problem. Oh, I know. It's just, it's so, it's so funny. And, and we were, the other, the other epiphany that I had, like we, in the editing of it, they, they had act, the guys had actually improv a lot, you know, like, Oh, why are you pointing them at your mouth? Why are you do all this kind of stuff? And and um and a lot of that was in there and then something was bugging me and um we realized it just got funnier if it was purely about them if there were no awareness that they're saying anything that, no cracking a joke about your mouth, but like there was a line like, Oh, are there four dudes in there? And and, and we en- ended up just taking all of that out and making it purely the more we made it purely about solving the problem. Because the way I saw it was that they're they're really upset about something and they're kind of taking comfort in just pro- solving a problem. That's I, I think that's the way a lot of engineers so you're take are. Out it's some like flair. a flare. <laughs> took out the flare exactly. <laughs> we uh, and and I think we got the optimal tip to tip efficiency of the scene with, now, with just yeah. I assume dry. that at this point, some engineers somewhere have sent you an entire treatise on like, well, if you really oh, yeah. wanted to, this is exactly <laughs> how you would. Well, the the our guy Vanith Masra, who is kind of our he's he's now he's now working at IBM. He's a brilliant PhD guy at Stanford, and and uh, I got to know him through the show, and and he he was he was. Uh, we sent him. His task was to just come up with some uh, some more equations to put on the dry erase board, and he just <laughs> went so deep into this. <laughs> like, I don't. I don't think anybody could challenge his. There's a. It's. I tweeted it. There's a. He published. Uh, there's a website where you put you know dissertations, whatever, for, and he he published a thing on there that's all very legit on the most efficient way to jack off. Uh, <laughs> N number of people, uh, I never got, and, but it's it's ridiculous. But there, what, that came after we had done the episode. But he, one of the equations he put on the, it's on the board, and Kumail was supposed to point to it and say, "This is the best metric for stamina." And he said, "What does this mean?" And I actually, this, if you, you were asking about, does my degree ever come in handy? Yeah. This, I was actually, I was a little bit proud of myself. I looked so. I said, you know what? Let me figure this out. I got to figure out what this means because, and I didn't get beneath on the phone. I did, but um, it's interesting because it's a curve. You can see it. It's there's a factor that you plug into another equation that has the time since your last ejaculation, your age, and uh, but and the, this alpha factor, and then there's this this graph, and so 
the x-axis is your age, so zero, like it starts at infinity because you can't ejaculate when you're just born. <laughs> and then it goes like this. It takes, it's like a bathtub curve, and then it starts to go up as you get older, and you plug that into this other formula. And I remember looking at it going like, oh, my God, this actually makes sense. This isn't bullshit. This, they thought about this a lot and gave us... And I was like happily like, Camille, check this out. This is, you know, Camille did computer science. He's able to understand the math of it. And I don't think it affected his reading of the line. This is the best metric for stamina. But but it was kind of cool that Camille actually wanted to know. He wanted to know what he was pointing at. And I was like, okay, that's legit. And, you know, some people were going like, oh, he's being all actory or whatever. But it was really really cool that anyway. No, you you can tell when something is. Authentic, like you, you know, as a viewer, without yeah. uh, without going, that is authentic. Like you sense, yeah. you know, like there's some the fact that you know the details that the formulas worked and that Kumail understood them. You you there's yeah, that's a different experience than watching just actors just read lines, spouting lines, spouting off. Yeah, I know. Well, oh, they just put some gibberish in the background. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't really mean anything. Like it. You you know you can tell without actually knowing that you that you can tell. Yeah, I think it's true. I think there's some kind of nuance to something that's that's real. That like like I've I've been saying like I when Do the Right Thing came out, it was it was around the time I was starting to do anim, animation, and I I had never been to Brooklyn or wherever it's set. I but watching it, I was just like, this seems real. I don't like I it seems like whoever did this is basing this on a real thing, even though I'd never been there, you know, like you could just kind of tell it had that feel. And I think, I think if you, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'm glad we try to get the details right because I think it does. And I think ultimately makes it funnier too, you know? Yeah. When it's, it, it's based in something at least hopefully believable. Well, it's, it's, you know, what, uh, John Flansburg referred to from a lot of they might be giant stuff is like oh fact based songs like the more the more <laughs> factual something is oh, I've never heard that that's <laughs> yeah he he referred to their music as like oh we write a lot of fact based songs I'm like and I'd never thought of it that way I'm like oh, of course you do of course you do oh wow yeah. you know and and there's something really funny about the more factual you get about something in some type of art, you know, like couched in something that's a, it's a kind of a complimentary art piece, it becomes funnier. It's like, yeah. just, it's just funnier the more detailed it becomes. Yeah, I agree. I, I, uh, we need to remind the actors of that. <laughs> no, I they, mean, is it, do they, you, uh, do you, do, when you, when you did the first season, it was obviously, it's, a, I think anytime a show can come together and work, like, oh, wow, that actually is a very hard thing to do. It's it's almost a it's almost. Oh, a, I know, yeah. So to then go, all right. Now you get another season. Now go do it again. You know, I mean, is it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's really hitting me on the third season. Actually, like I, I was, the first season, I was just so happy with the show and just how it all came together. And and uh, I didn't. Alec, my, you know, my partner on Alec Berg. I think he was feeling the pressure of season two more than I was at first. Then I started to really feel it toward <laughs> when we were getting scrambling to to write the last few episodes but um yeah now now it's starting to occur to me like oh my god another we have to start writing in like three weeks we just finished last week (laughs) oh my god but uh there's no time for you to do anything else right you're just pretty much focused on this not really i mean yeah it's it's uh yeah it's weird that king of the hill we do one year we did 24 episodes and even though this is it's just 10 somehow it feels like making three movies you know it's it's, uh i guess you just you know you stress out as 
much as possible, no matter what the schedule is. <laughs> well, a King of the Hill episode can be very self-contained. Well, that's the other thing. Those, yeah, we weren't doing series arcs with that, really. I mean, we a little bit, but not not really. And so, so that yeah, that was a little bit more. Um, yeah, that that was it's it's different when yeah, this is something where we kind of have to write it as one big piece. So that's the way. It's, a lot of TV shows are just. We didn't even when the show started. We just kind of. That it just sort of happened. It just that seems like what it needed to be is is a story, of, you know, about and I assume with an arc. Silicon Valley <clears throat> itself, as an entity, has probably largely accepted this show, right? I mean, it seems. Yeah, it seems like they have. Yeah, like like we we, yeah, we got a lot of love from, like, Sergey and Larry, the Google founders, where they wore a Pied Piper and Hooli T-shirts for their <laughs> ice bucket challenge, and Mark Zuckerberg, I've heard from. A lot of people wears a Pied Piper T-shirt. I mean, it's on Facebook. It's and, really interesting that it, you've done something that I think most like if you would pitch the show to a regular network, they might be like, "Oh, no one's gonna fucking get this. No one's gonna get. No oh, one's yeah. gonna get inside Silicon Valley jokes." And you go, "No, but there's a there's a way to you figured out a way to do a, a very multi-tiered thing where it's like you know you can get these entry level jokes just based purely on the comedy of these characters." If you happen to know anything about this world, there's this whole other stratum of comedy that you'll go, oh, my God, I know that guy and that guy yeah. and this thing. And that happens. Yeah, and I think I think there are, you know, the programmer nerd type people, the super brainy people. I, I think they're everywhere. And I, I think someone who's never been to Silicon Valley, whatever city they're in, can go, oh, that's like – if that guy I knew in high school suddenly had a billion dollars or if that person was, you know, caught up in a bidding war. And so I think hopefully it's relatable whether you've, I mean, I, I know people in Austin who uh, have nothing to do with Silicon Valley at all that love the show that you, you know, you wouldn't, I mean, a guy I know who's like a really great chef is like, you know, watches it religiously and like just, so I, I think, Seems to be reaching a pretty broad audience. Is that a conscious decision when you think, well, we have to balance the number of inside jokes with the number of more accessible jokes, or do you not do you not think of it that way? I do a little bit. I mean, sometimes, um, like we have a tech consultant who will say, like, oh, here, here's what they would be saying, but you know, I'll say, well, that they wouldn't be saying that to somebody who already knows it. That's very, you know, like I, I try to. I mean, there's some. A lot of times when they're having a lot of tech speak, I, you know, we try to make it so that there's something like there was the sixth episode of the first season. There was a, this really young coder that comes in that they hire and, and they're having our, but oh, right. a, a lot of those scenes are about, you know, the character Richard being threatened by this younger guy. So it's not really about the tech talk. It's about this kind of little pissing match they're in, you know? And I, th I mean, that's just an example of, I, I think, I, well, yeah, there's definitely a conscious effort to say, you know, um, to make it not so inside that you don't get it. But I, I also think, you know, I mean, I'm. It was a long time ago that I was an engineer. I I don't know a lot about the way it is now. So I mean, I, and and Alec is his brother worked for Paul Allen, and he's been close to tech, but he never worked in it. So it's I think it kind of helps that we actually aren't. You know, we have to we have to 
we're ignorant enough to, <laughs> to kind of <laughs> simulate the audience. <laughs> but also to be able to recognize like what it's yeah. important to be able to recognize like, well, this is too, or this doesn't work or this is, or, or skipping yeah. away and going, this is what this is really about more so than the lingo that needs to be in here. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's usually there's some kind of emotion attached to it or something that the character wants or doesn't want. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like Alec was saying, we're basically doing a show about something that's inherently unfilmable, people sitting there <laughs> programming. Like, I mean, it's, but that's, that, that challenge, I think, creates like an interest, some interesting stuff because you have to look elsewhere. It's not like a, you know, a bunch of hot young people working at an ad agency dating and stuff. You know, it's, it's just a different find different areas for comedy that maybe other shows haven't. Well, it's also the, it's sort of the exact, it's sort of the diametrical opposite of something like, like CSI cyber where they're like, yeah. just say the word, just say the term dark web a lot. <laughs> and that's a thing that, you know, just say the word cyber. You know how people throw the word net and cyber around, you know, it's a, it's like they, yeah, there's a, there's a, also a, um, Alec was telling me, so there's some writers that have, they call it CSI drinking game, which is when, when the natural response to what a character is saying would be, yeah, I know, I work here, <laughs> you, you drink? Because like someone will go like, like uh, I'm going to take the fingerprints and run them through our blah, 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 and the blah, 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 blah. Like that someone would just go, yeah, I know, I work here. Why are you telling us? <laughs> that's an amazing so, game. So we're always having the, like, we'll be writing something and go like, oh, that's a little too CSI drinking game. <laughs> that's genuine. Of course, of course. Yeah, I know. I, I don't know how many times you're watching that and you're like, "Well, why is she telling him that?" Do you've you just see? you're taking you're wasting yeah. so much time. You need to be saving this person from the. There was a. Uh, I I mean I thought imitation game was great, but there was one like I'm so aware because that's that's similar to what we're doing, writing about some, you know technical stuff. But there's a there's a scene in there where the guys are going like. We're taking the first letter and assigning that. To, I mean, we're taking the most common letters and assigning that to blah blah blah. And I'm, it was basically like what you learn in the first five minutes of your first cryptography class, right? And I was just like expecting someone to go, "Yeah, I know. <laughs> we work here. We're part of the government team to." Is there a reason to crack this? <laughs> wasting everyone's time here. But yeah, there's there's a. Uh, I think that's. I'm just. That's how hypersensitive I am to that now because that was a really good movie but I, I that's the yeah the CSI drinking game <laughs> but I, I feel like that's applicable to any to most types of writing that, it, that you have to you have to understand like yeah. you have to understand without direct exposition how do you explain what's going on it's just storytelling yeah, it's how, really, you, it's, how do you get the story across without going this is the story yeah. I'm telling you now <laughs> yeah. and that is that person and this is, the, this, is the, this is these yeah. things I think it's, it's really tricky that's why you know any kind of uh a trial is is a really uh, it's not easy to write but it's it's we we have a I won't give too much away. I don't when is this airing? I don't know. Is it airing Monday? Give some away. Yeah, we have a, give a little tease. Yeah, yeah, there might be some version of a of a trial and uh you know, it's it's writing those it's like, "Oh, this is great. We can just have a lawyer come out and say <laughs> here's here's what happened and here's the case and you know, um it's uh, I, I realize why there's you know you well I mean medical dramas and courtroom dramas or legal dramas are I think the reason that there are obviously there the reason that there are so many of those shows is you get a new story you can walk in the door each 
week, you know, there's yeah. uh, someone comes in with an injury or some, you know, um, or they've got a new case and it's the cases, legal cases are interesting and you can have people explain to the audience while they're explaining it to the judge. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it was wonderful to have you here. And yeah, thanks. Everyone should watch Silicon Valley if they're not, which is, uh, is it Sunday nights at 10.30 or 9.30? Uh, Sunday nights at 10 after Game of Thrones. At 10, so right after Game of Thrones. So it comes on, you can watch it on the West Coast at 7, I think, because the East Coast feed, but yeah. So watch, uh, watch Game of Thrones, and when atrocious things happen to characters <laughs> that you like, and you feel sad and dirty inside, then you can then watch Silicon cleanse Valley. Will, will <laughs> cleanse your palate and bring you right back into the world, into a happy place. Um, I always remember, I don't know why I'm telling you this, because I think your response will just be like, oh, okay, I don't know why I'm sharing this with you. But, it, <laughs> but when I worked on Singled Out, there sometimes things would happen where we would want to. Singled Out was a very, um, it was a very body show for its time, <laughs> uh, and sometimes we would try to do things, and they they would go, oh well, you know, standards they won't let you do that, and I would go. But I just saw Beavis jam his hand in his shorts and start jerking off vigorously last time he was a butt And they would go, oh, well, he, that's an animated character. I'm like, he was still jerking off. I was not asking to jerk off on the show, by the way. But it was just, it was oh, just something, funny. which I felt was benign. But their justification was like, I, oh, well, they're animated. So it's, it, you, it's not the same. I, it's weird because I would get the same thing. Like they told us we could not. We had a thing where the Secret Service was going to pull guns on him. We had another one where the cops were going to pull guns on him, and they had this whole violence thing, like, you can't show guns. Don't know guns. And I'm like, but they're cops. <laughs> and they said, no guns. You can't show guns. And then there was an episode of that show, The State, and a cop pulls a gun out. And I was like, how come The State can do that? And then they said kind of the, well, that's live action. You're animated. <laughs> so we, they, that, 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 they didn't know that their answer was, really, if you strip it away, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's just because they It's a double did it. standard, yeah, and we just it, don't want <laughs> And it's too late for us to change it. So shut the fuck up and just go host this dumb show. By the way, the thing with the hands in the pants was quickly removed. After, oh, was it? Yeah. Like, that was a <laughs> cutaway. Exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, that was a cutaway, and, and it was like... <laughs> <laughs> Somebody had done that. One of the animators did that, like as a, I don't even remember what, like, <laughs> God. And, and we put that in. It's like, oh, he's scratching. He's not jacking off. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that that was. I wasn't too proud of that one. That was. <laughs> that wasn't. Uh, Where do you think they would have? How, how do you think they would have grown up? Think they would have accidentally died in some terrible accident? Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I, I kind of. Uh, I can imagine them being really old, like in their 70s and 80s, and maybe like a little older than they were, but it's the in-between part that I don't... <laughs> dirty old man, I could totally see him as. I thought Butthead, like maybe some really low-level sales position, and then I just don't know how Beavis would get by. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't have an answer for Beavis at 35. <laughs> I don't know what that would be. He could have Forrest Gumped his way through. Yeah, you know, he could like, get really lucky, maybe. Yeah, You never know. Get injured and get a settlement or something <laughs> <laughs> he uh he got a he, he stumbled across a shrimping boat and that, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, opened it something like that would probably yeah that would make sense i just i don't know what kind of job or anything yeah the cornholio shrimping company postal worker or yeah, yeah uh if you ever want to come back on and hang out you're welcome anytime oh thank uh, you this is fun it's always it's always really fun you're you're one of those comedy people that is you don't have the stand-up gene where, like, if you're in a room with people, it's not like, 
it's not like oh my you know Mike Judge is going to try to dominate the conversation with jokes. Oh no, I don't. I, but you but <laughs> I but, but the, the stuff that you say is so incisive and it's like when it comes out, it's really I always admire that kind of. Uh, I always admire that type of person because I'm I I work in the numbers game. It's like I'll say ten <laughs> things and hopefully two of them are funny, and then I can go home happy, you know. But it's just I a don't different. Know. Well, thank you. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I'm, I'm not always. Uh, I strike out. <laughs> not always on. Not this time, Mike Judge. All right. Thank uh, you. We, you know, we end the podcast by telling people to enjoy their burrito. Would you mind doing that? For us, please. Say, enjoy your burrito. That's all you have to say. Uh, okay. Um, here, I'll do it. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy your burrito. <laughs> I can't tell you how much I was hoping that you would do that, but I didn't want to directly ask you to do it. Uh, but thank you for right. making my month. <laughs> now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. <laughs>